Future Proof with Jonathan McRae. Proudly supported by Science Foundation Ireland on News Talk. Hello and welcome to the Future Proof Podcast. This is the show where we take a closer look at the world around us. And I know we don't say it every week, but thank you for subscribing, rating, sharing, letting people know about the programme. We really do appreciate it. Coming up on this week's programme, you may remember about 20 years ago, we so-called completed the human genome. Well, it turns out, at least it's news to me, that we didn't. We only did 92% of it. And in fact, the human genome that we've been learning so much from and creating medical science and and exploring all the things that affect who we are was missing 8% of the full picture. That's quite a lot. And in there included is the Y chromosome, which at least for 50% of the population is a pretty important chromosome. So we'll be speaking to the Telomere to Telomere Consortium who managed to rally around the world of global scientists to fill in those tricky bits of DNA to give us what is now a complete version of the human genome. If you'd like to contact us, you can email us, science at newstalk.com. You can find us on Twitter, we're at Newstalk Science. We get to all of your comments later on in the podcast. First, though, it's time to look back at the week's science news. And joining us via the internet is Dr. Shane Bergen from UCD and double Dr. Lara Dungan. You're both very welcome. Our first story, Lara, has to do with cancer. It does. This is um, a a paper that was just published um, from the University of East Anglia. um, And it was published in a journal called the European Urology and Oncology Journal. Um, And it's making headlines. There was a a headline in The Guardian saying discovery of bacteria linked to prostate cancer hailed as potential breakthrough. Um, And it's for me a really good lesson in how headlines do not tell the whole story. So make sure that you actually read um, what's going on behind the headline. So I suppose to go into this in slightly of a background detail, um, there is a bacteria called H. pylori, which can cause stomach ulcers. Um, and stomach ulcers, um, if they're going on for a long time, can cause stomach cancer. So that means that the bacteria H. pylori is associated with stomach cancer. It's one of the few times where it has been definitively proven that a bacteria can result in that. Now, these researchers have taken urine from over 600 men half of whom have prostate cancer and half of whom don't. And they've also taken samples from prostate tissue. And they have looked at the bacteria that's growing in the urine and the prostate tissue. Um, And they have found five different bacterial species that they are associating with an aggressive form of prostate cancer. Now, that is where it starts and ends. Let me just say that it is an association. Now, one of the really fascinating parts of this paper is that three of those five bacteria are brand new species. And they also discovered another species which they didn't find to be associated with this cancer. And what they're saying is that there's a 2.6 times more likely um, uh, progression to an advanced disease if they have one of these five bacteria. Now, this to me, they are going to obviously do continued research, but at the moment, this paper means nothing, in my opinion. If they were to make a causal link, it would be very interesting. But at the moment, all they've shown is that people who have cancer, so potentially have problems with their immune system, such as a suppression, have bacteria in their urine. That is it. That's all that they've shown. So yes, potentially in five years, if they do more research, this might be very exciting. But no, antibiotics are not going to cure prostate cancer at the moment. Which is is really interesting because it sort of contrasts hugely with that um, Epstein-Barr virus um, uh, linked to MS story. It sounds, on the on the face of it, it sounds very similar that there might be a, a way of, of preventing or curing this prostate cancer. Um, but what you're saying is what we're seeing here is a correlation where is what was proven with um, the, the MS Epstein-Barr virus was that, that there is a, a, a causal effect. 
viruses can actually insert themselves into your DNA. They can cause huge problems. And when you're talking about one species of virus or one species of bacteria continuously causing a disease, I'm very willing to buy that. What I'm not willing to buy is five different bacteria all causing the same disease. I'm just, I'm not buying into it until I get a lot more evidence. Shane, our second story has to do with Europa and excitement uh, about, (laughs) when it comes to plants, it's always about this really at the end of the day, isn't it? Potential habitats for life. Yeah, uh, Lara quite rightly warned us about the difference between causation and association. And this is a paper that's looking just for association. No, no way we're going to get to causation for a while. Uh, Europa is a moon. It's a Jovian moon. It's one of Jupiter's. And it's, it's perhaps my favorite. I don't know what yours is, uh, but it, it, it looks like a marble. It's really shiny. It's surrounded by, uh, by ice and has uh, oceans on it. And it's estimated that it has more water on it than the entire Earth. Um, and uh, which is absolutely incredible. But there are also these ridges on the surface, and we don't know why they're there. And writing recently in Nature Communications, um, researchers from Stanford in California have said that they they reckon there are um, similarities between the ridges that are seen on the Greenland ice sheet and on the surface of Europa. And so they've done work to uh, try and understand the nature of those ridges um, on the Greenland ice sheet. And they will hopefully be able to see in the coming years a similar pattern on Europa. So you're probably wondering, well, what, what is the potential link? What, what happens on, on the surface of, uh, of the Greenland ice sheet is you get these kind of thin seas or, or puddles of, of salty water under the icy uh, sheet. And this kind of uh, freezes and thaws and freezes and thaws. And, and, and that pattern creates the undulating surface above so you get these ridges and they reckon that's what's happening on on the surface of europa and of course europa is 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 the place to look in the solar system if we want to think of extraterrestrial life yeah um what you're suggesting is that there might be a um a a temperate environment um that might be briny and might be salty and might have the sort of things that we would like to see uh, if we want to find a likelihood of life Absolutely. I probably left out the most important thing there, which is that that uh, freezing and thawing uh, idea is, is, is somewhere where you'd have a lot of movement, a lot of stirring. And in that salty environment, that, that would be more conducive to life than very, very still unmoving water. Yeah. And, and while that seems kind of crazy that like just jostling something around might spark off life, we do have to remember that life began somehow as an inanimate object as as minerals and heat and uh, movement and somehow when you think about it somehow moved from being sort of rocks and heat somehow turned into the carbon-based life forms that we we know today as you and me and that and that when you just pause for a second and think about that that is just absolutely wild but there's no reason to think that that isn't the case. There's no evidence to suggest that isn't the case. Absolutely. We don't know where life came from. Uh, there are multiple theories and it's one of those great areas where physics, chemistry and biology meet in our ignorance. Uh, but somehow, at some point, biomolecules turned into, um, you know, into biological structures that are quote unquote alive. And these have tried to be replicated in various experiments down through the years. You've covered them on the show, but we can't replicate it. That The magic is still there. Isn't it brilliant? Um, it, it absolutely is, and I, as I say, it does it it does make me 
scratch my head when I when I think too hard about it. There's a few things in this program over the 12 years that made me go, what? That electricity. Is That's electricity. Your yes. What is electricity? <laughs> I just don't get it. Um, our third story is about food cravings, Lara. Yeah, this is a published um, a paper that was just published in the Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences. Um, and unlike our first one, this is one that I actually am very much buying into. Um, so what these researchers wanted to do was see whether our gut microbiome, which is all of the uh, microorganisms such as bacteria that live inside our gut, whether they in any way influence what we prefer to eat and what we crave. So they took um, three groups of mice. All of these mice have no gut microbiome. They're bred to be that way. And they gave them um, bacteria that came from the guts of three very different groups of wild mice, depending on what those wild mice ate. Um, So there's ones that are uh, essentially sort of herbivore. um, There's ones that, so they would kind of seek out the carbohydrates. And there's ones that they call omnivore. And there's ones that they call carnivore conventionalized mice. I I can't get full access to the paper, so I can't get my head around what these carnivore mice are. But anyway, I presume it's ones that would would eat more protein rather than more carbohydrates as opposed to mice that go out and hunt. Um, But what they did was they then saw whether or not these animals preferentially ate the same diets as the donor animals. And they found that they did. Um, And I think this is really interesting. Yeah, so the the only difference that these animals have, they are identical animals until they get this gut microbiome. And then all of a sudden they start picking different types of food to their, their litter mates. And I mean, it's very good evidence to show that the microbiome in your gut is influencing what you want to eat. The, the gut to me is an almost like an extension of the brain. It's literally associated because of the vagus nerve that runs from the brain down to the gut. But the gut produces a huge amount of serotonin um, and an awful lot of, of transmitters that are also neurotransmitters. So it's a fascinating part of our body. Um, and, and this evidence is showing that potentially the bacteria that are inside our gut are producing substances. Now, they are suggesting it could be tryptophan, which is quite a famous amino acid. It's quite found a lot in Turkey. So people think that after you have a big turkey meal that the tryptophan makes you feel sleepy that is utter um, bs but you know what tryptophan can in very large amounts of course but not from turkey and um, but it, it's really interesting now that they have to elucidate more what's going on here but i really do think that it's possible that the microbiome in your gut is helping you to pick or maybe hindering you in your choices maybe making you make very poor diet choices so fascinating research for the future here i find that absolutely crazy because i mean obviously Again, another weird thing to contemplate is the idea that our whole body is made from the things that we we put into it. And like our, our hair cells and our eyes and our heart muscle all comes from, you know, apples or, you know, <laughs> exactly, chicken, yeah. chicken salad sandwiches. That turns into heart. Like that is also an amazing fact. It is amazing. It is uh, amazing. But, but, Absolutely. But the idea that not only are we are what we eat, but also what we eat um uh, it sort of cyclically tells us what to eat even further. It's kind of crazy because presumably these bacteria are ones. Um, actually, that's a good question. Do, do those bacteria are they native to those um, mice, or did they get them through through birth, or are they acquired from eating and exposure to a particular environment? So strictly speaking, when you're born, you are um, you have no sterile, gut microbiome. Yeah. The second you come out of your body, you are sterile and you pick up everything you pick up from there on. So you pick things up from the birth canal and everything you eat and what your parents have around you. So it is what they've developed from the environment that they've grown up in. Um, but if you think about it, we ourselves will crave nutrients that we are missing. So for instance, if you are anemic, you tend to crave steak and things like that. So why wouldn't these bacteria also crave what they want and be intelligent? 
intelligent enough to have evolved to force you to want to eat it. I just think it's really amazing. Absolutely fascinating. Shane, our final story has to do with sending a message out to space in the hope that alien ears might hear it. Absolutely. We've done so many incredible things. I think as a species, we tend to think we're fairly great. And we want to tell the rest of the galaxy about that. And this is the work of Jonathan Jiang at NASA's Jet Propulsion Laboratory in California, who wants to send out a new interstellar missive known as Beacon in the Galaxy. It's almost like he's got the rights for the film already, right? Because what's going to happen is they're going to broadcast a a message using the SETI Allen array in California and also a very large radio telescope in China. And they're going to send this out to the center of the Milky Way because there's a lot of stars there in close proximity. And so they're hoping that this message will reach somebody. Now, it's going to take a long time. You know, I'm talking uh, tens of thousands of years, hopefully, to reach anyone, if, if at all. And, of course, they'll have to send something back if they can understand it. But um, it's, it's getting a lot of attention. And there's been um, a preliminary paper that's in discussion at the moment. It's not fully peer-reviewed yet, but it's got a, a, a huge amount of, of uh, sort of interest from other scientists. And the things they're, they're going to send, what would you send first, right? Um, firstly, they're going to send a little basics about how we communicate. And then the first things they're going to send, I'm delighted, physics and maths. Yeah, I was um, thinking I would have put maths on, put maths, yeah, how we, I, I, how we I, add. Where's biology? Yeah. So uh, after the physics and maths, they're going to they're <laughs> then going to send information about DNA. So they tell them about us. <laughs> Don't worry, Lara, we wouldn't leave you out. But crucially, they're going to tell the receiver where we are. So uh, Stephen Hawking warned against this. Uh, this is, you want to be careful if you go and, of course, it's tongue in cheek, like uh, sending out uh, a message in, into, into space and telling them where we are. We might get visitors we don't want. But I, I think this is a wonderful project. It's uh, Whilst I think it's very likely that there is life out there, it's probably quite unlikely that we'll ever find it. Yeah, um, but if you don't go looking, you know, Shane, you know. This is it, you know. Lara looks a bit shocked. Yeah, I just, I don't understand why it's unlikely we'll find it. Could they it's not find big. it? I suppose that's the point. Space is big, yeah. It is big, true. It's really, but it's DNA's really. DNA is really little, so I get that. It's really, really big. <laughs> cover it all, from the super duper to the nitty gritty. Yeah. We got it all on this show, eh, Johnny? Oh, well, I think we'll wrap it up, will we? Uh, Dr. Shane Bergen from UCD and Lara Dungan, thanks very much for joining us. Now, since the first draft of a human genome sequence was completed in 2000, Genomics research has led to huge strides in the understanding of our biology. But this human genome we've been using, it wasn't complete. In fact, a full 8% of the human genome wasn't sequenced. Until now, in 2019, an international team of scientists set out to rectify this gap. Earlier this month, unveiling the first gap-free sequence of the human genome ever. But how do they do it and what does it mean for us? Well, Karen Miga is Assistant Professor of Biomecular Engineering at UC Santa Cruz and Associate Director of UCSC Genomics Institute. She joins me now. Uh, she worked on the project with Adam Philippi. Um, welcome to the program, um, Karen. Tell me, in 2000, this um, human genome that was sequenced, there was so much fanfare. I remember at the time thinking, oh, my God, this is huge. How is it that there was so much of it missing? Well, why did they not just finish the job? Right. So I guess the 2003 paper was when we were actually celebrating it being quote unquote finished. 
And at that point, we were celebrating the parts of the genome that we could put together were finished. These were the parts that we knew contained genes. And it was clear in the paper um, that there were regions of our genome that were at the time too difficult to reconstruct and were known to be gene poor. And so were thought to be left off the map. And it was estimated to be about eight to 10%. So it was really only until today um, with the right team and right technology and right time that we could really make that final reconstruction. Tell me how that works, because when I think of DNA, uh, I, you know, I, I know it's very long um, and it, it has this double helix shape, but I, I would have imagined that one section was just as easy to read as another, because in my mind, it seems like a, just a uniform sort of continuous geometric shape. You know, that's a, a pretty accurate description of what we think about DNA as being this type of complex, long string inside of our nucleus. If you were to stretch it out, we're talking about, you know, billions of bases. The challenge here is that scientists cannot read base by base across entire chromosomes. And so what we have to do is kind of fragment our genomes into small pieces and try to reconstruct our genome or, or assemble is a common way of saying it. And so this reconstruction in the past was using very small puzzle pieces, if you want to think of it that way. And the parts that were missing were repeats. So if anyone's put a puzzle together, there are parts of the puzzle that are really hard. Perhaps it's that blue sky or the part of the grass where everything's the same color green. This is the part of our genome that was really difficult to put together for many decades. Now we have bigger puzzle pieces. We call these long reads. And so we're able for the first time to really start putting those more complicated and, and complex regions of our genome together and actually see a full picture. Were there certain chromosomes? Because uh, remind me, we have 23 chromosomes. Is that, is <laughs> that right? And, from your, we and have a half. Two genomes. Well, we have two genomes from each of our moms and our dads. We inherit two. So we have 23 from each and 46 total. Yeah, so tw 23 pairs of, mm -hmm. uh, of chromosomes. Are there certain chromosomes that are more difficult to read than others? And why would that be? Absolutely. So for example, if you were to look in a microscope, down at human chromosomes. One chromosome would be very bright and shiny by eye, and that's the Y chromosome. Roughly half of that chromosome is composed of what of repeats, meaning if you had a stretch of sequence, they're found in a head to tail, head to tail, for millions and millions of bases, and we still don't fully understand why it's organized that way. And there are plenty of chromosomes like that that are more challenging than others. Um, for example, there are five chromosomes in our genome that until our work, we didn't even know one of the arms of the chromosomes. We always think about chromosomes as having, you know, two arms and pinched in the middle. Well, five of our arms are just completely missing from the maps before. So I feel like um, this is really due to having this unique repetitive structure that that's um, non-randomly distributed across the genome. Is it that the the fact that it's repeated over and over again that when you break it apart, you don't know how to put those pieces back together because they look so similar? Is that is that the problem? Well, there's multiple issues here. I think that you're absolutely correct. You can instantly imagine that if you had a skipped record or an echo, you know, we have the same sequence over and over again, and you have a lot of small pieces, it's hard to know how to order them correctly and organize that information, especially if those pieces look similar in multiple locations, right, between different chromosomes. And so all of that took um, our team really understanding how to look at very small differences and use those differences to really make accurate long-range uh, long maps. 
um, what I would say as well is it's not only these short tandem repeats, that's what I study, so you're probably hearing bias with my um, interest in my own research program, but there are stretches of our genome which contain genes which look like normal textbook parts of our genome that are copied um, and are inserted in another part of our genome. So these are called segmental duplications. These are large copies of our genome, and they can range hundreds of thousands of bases, and those are hard to resolve as well because you don't know it's kind of like if you had that same puzzle idea and you had two exact copies of a sun <laughs> on some kind of science fiction puzzle and you're trying to figure out which place you should place that uh, yellow part. So it, I think these challenges of repeats have been really difficult for a very long time and we, we finally have the tools to, to make it across. So it wasn't that this 8% wasn't important or that didn't have as much of a part to play in evolution or the functioning of uh, of a human body. It was just, it was tricky to get. Does that mean that this final um, map that we now have, which is so much more complete, gives us a- another big boost for, for, for medical research? Or, or is, is this 8% less important somehow? I love the way that you phrased that. Of course, these large persistent gaps in our genome, they map to places that we know are critically important for the cell to work. If we didn't, if for example, if you had a synthetic genome and you were creating one and you didn't put these sequences in, that cell would not exist. We need those sequences uh, in order to, to live and to be alive. And so some of these sequences map to things called centromeres. Your audience may remember this from basic biology, but every cell in our body more or less needs to divide at some stage. And the genome needs to replicate and be partitioned equally. If something happens where it doesn't um, end up in equal um, parts when you start to do that division, you can have cancers, you can have aneuploidies, you can all these really terrible things happen. And so the centromeres are really important to ensure that that process um, keeps going correctly. Well, I want to also mention that these regions of our genome that we're discovering are the most dynamic between individuals and even between our most recent non-human primates. And so we're kind of uncovering a whole new set of sequences which are human specific that we've never been able to really tap into before. And it is our hope that the new future, now that we've reached this milestone, will be more complete and be more comprehensive. There's lots of human diseases where we have not yet connected the dots with our genetics um, and to this clinical outcome or that people are facing. And so in this case, I think that we're hoping that we can provide more information to researchers, to clinicians, and, and to the public to be to begin to understand how our genome can contribute to how we're human and also to human disease. So how does it work? Now that you've, you've done this, do you just make it available to anyone and they can just access uh, the, the, the library of the human genome? Or do people have to pay to access the research? Or how, how does it play out for, for medicine? Well, there's been a lot of fanfare at the first human genome. I mean, people were standing up and making these big um, politicized statements. Our team has just from the beginning tried to be as open and as accessible as possible. Um, As we've made every step along the way, we've released our data openly um, with no restrictions on GitHub. We've issued open release preprints describing our work. Why we're getting fanfare now is just because we've gone through the final stages of peer review, but our work has been open and accessible the entire time. To engage with the public even more, we've now paired up with a a genome browser known as the UCSC Genome Browser. Um, Hopefully we can provide the link after this, but you know, using this website, one can go and just look base by base and study all of the chromosomes that we've issued, download it, 
and, and work from your desktop. Um, so we're trying to make this more accessible. However, I, I have to say we're also trying to make this genome one of many um, because uh, this particular um, genome is of European ancestry and that one genome cannot fully represent the geographical genomic diversity we know are in, is in our species. And so our team now has our heads down trying to increase the number of these genomes and once again, make all of that information accessible to researchers as well. Yeah, the, the genome is based essentially on two, this, this project that you're working on is essentially based on two people. Is that right? How were they chosen and why? Actually, the, uh, the CHM13, which is the name of our reference genome that we've recently released, although human in nature does not represent any human that's on Earth. What happened is we used a very specialized cell line that was derived from an early developmental event where the, um, you have, I guess everyone understands the idea of early development where you have an egg and a sperm. And in this case, the egg had lost the genome. So you only have a genome from the sperm and the sperm's genome was duplicated. And so in this case, what we're essentially talking about is a sequence assembly or a reconstruction of a discarded sperm genome, which represents, as we talked about at the beginning, all of our cells have two genomes, the ones we inherited from our mother and the one we inherited from our father. The genome we're talking about is just the father-inherited genome, and that makes it a little bit of an easier challenge for our team. Um, once again, going back to that puzzle idea, it's like you have two genomes that look very similar in the same box, so you have to kind of move pieces out the two piles before you can put them together. And in this case, we didn't have to worry about that. We were just focused on one genome in that box. Right. Okay. I, I was going to say, why would you just, why would you pick one genome? But it, it makes the, the puzzle you're trying to solve that much easier. But um, there was also genetic material that was from a 51-year-old man from Harvard, right? Uh, Leonid Peshkin. And he donated the Y chromosome. Can you, can you tell me why you would do that? And given the fact that our DNA, you know, decays over time and as we're exposed, you know, the as we age, our, our telomeres start to come apart. I, I'm wondering why, why a 51-year-old man and not a 14-year-old boy, for example? Oh, interesting question. No, in this particular case, this individual was part of a program called the Personal Genome Project. Um, this is a, a really celebrated project that was um, housed largely at Harvard University by George Church. And, and a whole group of organizers. And the idea there was that individuals from the public um, could be engaged with genetic and genomic research. They could sequence their own genome and, and their faces because they would be well consented for open, the most open consent I've ever seen in terms of this type of documentation. So this one individual happened to be a member of the Personal Genome Project and was a volunteer and went through all of the correct um, consent. So you can instantly imagine why you wouldn't want a 14-year-old um, issuing their genome sequence with that level of right. consent, first off. Okay. And then second off, um, this particular genome, because it was so openly consented, became um, the focus point of another uh, group of scientists known as Genome in a Bottle. And they started sequencing a, a ton of information from this one individual cell line. So when we walked into this, we already had a tremendous amount of tools. Um, our palette was already covered with paint, for example, so we could really begin to move quickly. We didn't have to start over and, and generate all of these sequences already. And so HG002 is what we 
we kind of call before we recently found out our team recently found out who it was as well in a, in a release. Um, so I think that that is a pretty exciting genome for us to even move forward with, with trying to complete another human genome as well. You, you spoke about the Eastern um, or the European heritage of the this particular genome. And I'm wondering, how difficult is it to get something that is reflective of all the diversity in life? I mean, how many different human genomes do you think you would need to cover all of humanity accurately, given that, you know, obviously, there are lots of different ethnicities now? Yeah, of course. I mean, I would say global genomic diversity and getting that right and representative is is um, an incredibly important yet difficult challenge. It's at the intersection of not only the importance of bringing this information to the biomedical and to the public communities, but also you're working at the edge of society and how um, a lot of communities internationally um, have now regulation on their own genome sequences and things like that. So I feel like there is a, a huge distance ahead of us where we need to establish partnerships, trust, um, and start thinking deeply about how we can best benefit the communities of individuals who are contributing towards these these projects of the future. But for now, um, we are benefiting from a previous project known as the Thousand Genomes Project. And in this case, there were individuals who were geographically sampled um, around the world who already are consented for this type of project. Um, and they're sequent, they have cell lines, they can be sequenced and they can be, these sequences can be reconstructed into these more complete reference genomes and shared. And so although it's not a, an entirely complete picture of our species, it definitely can help motivate the right tools, technology, and ecosystem for scientists to start thinking deeply about what our genomes look like when we have a, a better representation and a higher a higher ground for understanding our, our species outside of just one or two representative genomes. What was the most surprising thing from that work that you've just published, the 8% that, that fills in the gap of the human genome? You know, as I mentioned at the beginning of our show, the idea was that these regions that were missing from our map did not contain genes. And I think it was surprising to find that we had, you know, thousands of predicted genes and hundreds of protein coding genes that were hidden away. And we just had an incomplete catalog of knowing genes in our own genome. And I think that's pretty important. Um, that was surprising. I think I study these long tandem repeats, which are kind of in the corners of our genome. That's my research focus. So I was surprised when looking across some of the biggest regions with the longest chains of head to tail, that there were these mo these strange um, differences where all of a sudden it would take two steps forward and one step back. So there were these strange patterns of inversions where it would go back and forth and back and forth. And I think all of this type of information we don't quite understand yet, but there's a signal, there's information that's hidden in there. It's not as simplistic as perhaps we went into this with. And I'm pretty excited to understand how that type of signal or information could help guide us to understand the function of these regions as well. Well, Karen Mega, Assistant Professor of Biomolecular Engineering at UC Santa Cruz and co-founder of the Telomere to Telomere Consortium, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me and for the interest in our work. Thank you. Future Proof with Jonathan McRae. Proudly supported by Science Foundation Ireland. Sunday morning at 10 on News Talk.